Thank you, Robin. I don't know about you, but singing praise to the Lord, the Almighty, was pretty good. I thought it sounded good and was a lot of fun. Something you don't need to know about me, but when I'm getting ready on Sunday mornings, it's often on my playlist and on repeated loop. So it's one of my favorite songs, and it was just great to sing it with you this morning. Well, we are starting a new series in the book of Haggai. Don't be ashamed. You can use the table of contents to look it up. It is hard to find, but if you can find Matthew, you can work backward from there through Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai. Now, Haggai is only two chapters, so if you get past either Malachi or Zechariah and you're seeing something else, know that you've gone too far and you need to return. So Haggai chapter 1, we'll spend three weeks in Haggai, I think it's going to uh, give us a lot of good direction as we continue to think about renewal here at Monument Heights. Haggai chapter 1, and at some point we'll probably return to a pattern that I prefer, which is reading the passages in their entirety prior to the sermon, but... As long as COVID is still in the picture, we're trying to keep our services within certain time constraints, and we'll continue to observe that now. So just go ahead and turn there, and as always, we'll get there in just a moment. Let me open us, however, in prayer, asking God to illuminate His Word and to speak to our hearts. Father, we are so aware of our blindness We are so aware of how difficult it can be to come to Scripture and to see the truths that are there. We do violence to Scripture sometimes. We make it about us or we turn it into some sort of self-help book like anything we could pick up on a Barnes & Noble shelf. And yet, this is a book that reveals who you are and most of all points us to Christ our King. So I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. I pray that you would stir our affections, that you would speak with authority from your word to our congregation this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When the Lord issues the Ten Commandments uh, to Israel, this is after they've come out of slavery, of course, in Egypt, and then, so remember that order, that's important. So they come out of slavery in Egypt, and then there are the Ten Commandments. And he begins with these two. So first the preface, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So here's what I did, now here's what you are to do in response. First two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. That's number one. Number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, which, by the way, they'll do in Exodus 32, remember the golden calf, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So two commandments here. You shall have no other gods before me. And number two, you shall make no images for worship. Now notice both of those commands concern what we call worship. The word worship comes to us from Old English, literally meaning to ascribe worth to something, to give worth to someone or something. And the Lord is telling them, this is how you must worship. 
He is regulating their worship. You shall have no other gods before me, so there's no space for anything else to be worshipped. And number two, that worship shall not take the form of images and things on earth because the God that you are worshiping cannot be confined to anything within creation. So those are the first two rules that regulate worship. Now the problem in the book of Haggai, which is much later than Exodus, it's one of the latest books in our Old Testament, the problem in Haggai is that Judah, the southern city, Judah, after returning from exile, is failing to prioritize worship. They're failing to make worship the primary thing. Let me give you some background just quickly uh, before we jump into the text. So Judah returned from exile in Babylon. Judah, again, is the southern region. You have Israel, which is the northern region. So this is after the kingdoms have split. But Judah is where Jerusalem is. All of that's in the south. They had returned from exile in Babylon in the 530s. And they began rebuilding the temple. Now, the temple was important. It had been destroyed, but it was the central place of Israel's national and religious identity because it represented the presence of God. It actually did more than represent the presence of God. It housed the presence of God. And in the mindset of Israel, as long as the temple was there, God was with them. That's important for them. So the temple was the focal point. We really don't have anything quite equivalent to this that would be so loaded in our culture. We have sort of political buildings and then we have religious buildings, but we don't have anything that really carries the same weight and significance uh, as the temple would have for um, any Old Testament Jewish people or even into the New Testament, the Jewish people there in the first century prior to the temple's destruction in 70 A.D. Now, the temple was always meant, at least from a biblical perspective, at least from God's perspective, the temple was always meant to be temporary. It was never the final uh, end. It was never to be the, the end of all worship. There was always to be more than the temple. And by the end of the series in Haggai, I hope to show you that because I think there are a number of hints that point us to the fact that this isn't the end of the story. So, Judah begins rebuilding the temple sometime in 530, uh, 536, somewhere in there. But due to the threats of other people, due to fear, they stopped. So, the temple progress halts. And that's where we are when we get to Haggai some 10, 12, 13 years later. Both Haggai and the other prophet, his contemporary, Zechariah, are calling for the temple to be rebuilt. And Haggai's writing around the year 520. Ultimately, this temple will be rebuilt. It will be completed in 516. But what we're going to see in Haggai is the need to pick up the work again, to prioritize worship once more, to get the work done that has been halted for at least a decade at this point. But as we go into Haggai, as we begin the very first verses, what we learn is that Judah is apathetic. They are what we would call indifferent. They are failing to prioritize worship. 
They're content with where they're at. They're happy to be out of exile. Life seems okay. In some ways, we're going to also talk about how it's not actually that good, but it seems okay from their perspective. And yet, they're failing to do what God has called them to do, to prioritize worship. I am the God who brought you out of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. They're failing to do that very thing. So the Lord sends them the prophet Haggai. And the key to Haggai's message is the title for the sermon this morning, Consider Your Ways. Consider Your Ways. We see the phrase repeated um, a few times in the book, two times in our passage this morning, which is all of chapter 1. So it's a prominent one for us this morning. Consider your ways. And I truly believe this is a word to us. Monument Heights, consider your ways. About a year ago, I came to the conclusion that there are three big areas that churches in need of renewal need to focus on, that they need to address. Okay, three big areas. I'll share one now, and then maybe you'll come back in the weeks ahead to see if I'll share the others, and I'll keep you waiting in suspense for years on end. I'll share one with you now. If you want to talk about the others later, I'll freely share them with you. Just be warned, you'll probably get stuck with me for an hour or two. All right, so the first one, and I think Haggai's call to consider our ways is especially concerned with this one. So here's one non-negotiable key to church renewal. The church must make an absolute and unwavering commitment to the worship of God. The church must make an absolute and unwavering commitment to the worship of God. Now, you might say, easy, right? No problem. In fact, we have a plaque hanging on our front door under the carport that says we do that. That's not enough. We have to actually prioritize this. It's not as easy as it sounds. See, many churches are nothing more than entertainment venues, Many churches aren't interested in talking about a God. Think about it. When is the last time you've heard a sermon series on the sovereignty or the power or the wrath or the perfection or the simplicity of God? And yet you've heard dozens of sermon series on how not to be angry or how to have better finances perhaps or how to be happier or satisfied or some parenting tips All of those things are fine, but when is the last time we talked about God? That's the point. See, many churches are prone to feeling good, and they're prone to positivity, and what I would call, especially in Baptist tradition, sappy sentimentalism and political endeavors as well. But the sustained exposition of the gospel that Christ died for our sins and rose again for our justification... And the breathtaking benefits of His atonement on the cross are seldom explained. They're seldom applied. See, the problem is many churches aren't interested in the God of the Bible. And as a result, their roots are very shallow. So, a priority is an absolute and unwavering commitment to the worship of God. Notice I say a priority because I feel like every week I say, this is the number one thing we must do. But this is all foundational. It's all necessary. So we talked last week about obedience, but we're also talking about now this unwavering commitment to worship and glorify God. Yes, absolutely. If we get that wrong, everything else will crumble. We will be a church built on sand. 
And so this is what the whole series of Haggai is about, prioritizing worship. All right, let's get into Haggai. Verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, so king of Persia, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. All right, so we've got a lot of characters here. Just, just take note of them this morning. We won't spend a lot of time today. Next week, we'll talk a little more about them. So first, we have Darius, the king of Persia. And we're told it's the second year of his reign, so that makes it 520. So 500 years prior to Christ coming. That's where we're at. The word of the Lord comes by Haggai to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is the governor of Judah. So he's the political leader. And he's going to be important as well. He's going to point us ahead to the real leader, the real king that we need in Jesus. And then there's this other interesting character named Joshua. Now you need to know that Joshua is the same name as Jesus. Just let it sink in. I'm not saying something crazy. Joshua and Jesus, in both Hebrew and Greek, are synonymous. So, often when people would hear the name Joshua, they would be thinking in terms of Jesus. Now, that name means deliverance, salvation. Next week, I'm going to show you how he also points forward. For now, what I want you to note then is Zerubbabel and this this Joshua and these characters are important and they ultimately will point us to Christ. But that's not really where we're going this morning. So verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, this is a rebuke. The Lord does not refer to them as my people. He says these people. That is a rebuke, a very subtle one, but a very fearful one. For the Lord to not refer to them as my people, but these people, is an absolute accusation against them. And notice the problem that he points out. They are lazy in spiritual matters. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. This is apathy. This is indifference. In fact, Christian tradition has a word for this. It's one of the seven deadly sins. It's called sloth. Now, sloth is not just mere laziness. Sloth is spiritual resistance. It is that thing in us that rebels against God, that pushes back, that's not interested in spiritual matters, that finds them boring. It is a refusal to be bothered by God, to answer God's calling. It is a refusal to grow and deepen in the things of God. That's sloth and is quite dangerous. It is what makes us always run out of time for Scripture and for prayer. It's why involvement and participation in the church is so difficult. It's what makes us resistant to change. It's what makes church services sometimes feel cold and lifeless. That's sloth. Prioritizing worship means putting sloth to death. Look at the continued accusation from the Lord, verses 3 and 4. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, that's a reference to the temple, this house lies in ruins? A few things to point out to you. Pay attention to what's happening. They live in paneled houses. This is a somewhat rare term in the Old Testament, and it is almost always 
referring to the first construction of the temple in 1 Kings. So almost always this is a word that is exclusively associated with the Lord's temple. So there's this little play on words happening here. These people live in luxury. They live in this sort of house that has a uh, reflection of worship. And yet, the Lord's temple lies in ruins. It's desolate. It's empty. And you might want to take note of that word ruins because it's going to come up again. And then there's going to be a little play on the word later as we get into the deeper verses here in chapter 1. So here's the reality application for us drawn from this passage. We are always worshiping. That's that's the point. They were worshiping by not worshiping the Lord. They were building paneled houses for themselves. That's an act of worship. What we spend our time on is an act of worship. What we do in a given day is always an act of worship. So what we prioritize and what we value reflect what we worship. So take stake of your life, look at it, give honest assessment to it. For the people in Haggai, they are prioritizing their own comfort, their own homes, their own agenda, the luxury of living in paneled houses, but they are not worshiping the Lord. But make no mistake about it, they are worshiping. The warning for us is the same. What do we give our time to? What gets the majority of our attention How about here in the church? What things take the place of worship? Are prayers and scripture boring? Would we rather celebrate something other than worship? Perhaps a secular or national holiday? You've seen all of these breaches of worship, no doubt. I don't need to give you specific examples. You've seen them. As a congregation, though, we must prioritize worship. And when you think about it, our gathering is, we're actually limited, right, to an hour on Sunday. You go over an hour, people start sneaking out. But, but we're limited to an hour. You have 168 hours in a week, and I'm not saying worship can, can't happen elsewhere. It certainly does. You're always worshiping. So don't, don't hear me contradicting myself, but think about it. As a gathered congregation, how much time do we give to worship? We must prioritize it. And here's what the Lord says to His people in verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Take an honest assessment of what you are doing. Look at what's going on in the heart. What are your affections drawn to? Put the questions to your life. Why do your priorities look the way they do? And he goes on to point out that their lives aren't flourishing. Or they may think they're living in ease and comfort, but they aren't experiencing the blessing of the Lord. To use an English idiom, they are spinning their wheels. You have a job, but it's not satisfying. You have stuff, but it doesn't bring joy or peace or comfort. You're retired, but you're not happy with being retired. You've put a ton of time into a relationship, but it's still not working. It's still crumbling. It's still not fulfilling you. That's what the Lord says to them. Verse 6. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you have 
You never have your fill, which is a tame translation actually here. You don't get drunk with it. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm, and he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. So there's this gaping hole in your life. You're doing all this stuff. You're running around. You're busy. You're, you're, you're doing everything you think you need to be doing, and yet none of it is satisfying because there's this gaping hole in life apart from the proper ordering. You see, as Augustine pointed out many, many, many years ago, we are a people with disordered desires. What we need is a reordering of our desires so that we worship the Lord as our priority. As A.W. Tozer would point out some 18 or 1,600 years later, there is always something sitting on our throne of our heart. We must, therefore, ensure that the Lord Almighty is sitting on that throne. Now, let's say that we're looking at our priorities now. We're assessing our life. We're assessing the life of our congregation. And our eyes are starting to open up a little. We're saying, mm, okay, maybe, maybe there's that area that needs to be looked at. Maybe there's that area in my life that I'm prioritizing that I could cut out a little bit. Maybe there's that area here at Monument Heights that needs lopped off because it's actually getting in the way of worship. And our eyes are starting to open to some of these difficult truths. So what do we do next? Verse 7 tells us. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. There it is again. Consider your ways. So that's what we must do. Honest assessment. Ruthless assessment. Then Judah is given this instruction. Prioritize worship. Radically reorder your life so that worship is central. So that it is your heartbeat. So that it is what you are about. So it is what gets you out of bed in the morning and what keeps you up in the middle of the night. Verse 8. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it. And that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Notice there's three imperatives, three commands. You might underline these. Go up to the hills. And bring wood. That's number two. Bring wood. And then build the house. So three things that they need to do. You may even want to think about them for yourself. Get up. Gather the materials. And build. It's almost as if the Lord would say to us, wake up. Don't slumber. Don't persist in sloth and resistance. Put things in order and prioritize Worship. And what is the end result of this? If you do this, if you go up and you build this house, it is so that the Lord Himself takes pleasure in it. The Lord is pleased by our worship, right? And then, secondly, the Lord will be glorified by it for the glory of God. We've talked about that a lot. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be glory. That's going to be our heartbeat. That's the thing that, that should satisfy us more than any other, that God would be magnified, that His supremacy, that His goodness, His greatness would be lifted up and His name would be beautiful because of the work we're doing. So when we come here to worship, that's exactly what we're here to do. That's what we're about. We're not here to show off our speaking skills or to say uh, to, to stand up and preach or to perform musically. All of those things are good. But ultimately, if they're not directed for the glory of God, they are idolatrous and they must be dealt with. 
So maybe take a moment and consider what this would be like for you. What does your devotional life look like? I mean, your life before the living God. There's this great Latin phrase, quorum Deo, before God. What does your life look like before God? Is there prayer? Of course, a preacher told you there should be, right? So, is there prayer? Yeah, of course. Is there scripture? Yes, because that's all we talk about. You see, read your Bible and pray. But does the Lord get sustained attention? Do you prioritize gathered worship with the congregation? Here, I'm not beating up on people who are genuinely fearful of COVID and who have health concerns. We would say those people are providentially hindered for now from gathering with us. But I am talking about people who are able and comfortable. Do you prioritize gathered worship, especially outside of a pandemic? Parents, grandparents, caregivers, do you give yourselves to family worship? I mean, is there a time, a couple times a week, where you're reading Scripture and you're praying together, where you're instructing the children under your care in the matters of the faith? Do you give yourself to such instruction? Now, I've been on a New Hampshire confession kick for weeks now, and I'm going to quote it in every sermon until you're sick of it. But it's got some great advice for us here, and it is our first confession When this church was founded in 1950, it was founded on the New Hampshire Confession. Listen to the article on sanctification, which is how we grow in holiness. Sanctification is carried on in the hearts of believers by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do it. Get that right up front. In the continual use, and here's what I want to draw your attention to, of the appointed means. That is, God has given us ways to grow. Especially, five categories, the Word of God, self-examination, self-denial, watchfulness, and prayer. I think these five categories are especially helpful as we think about the practical aspects of our Christian walk. The Word of God, self-examination, self-denial, watchfulness, and prayer. Now, I already know as a Baptist pastor that we hear about two of these. We hear about the Word of God and prayer, but we receive, in reality, very little instruction on either of them. And then the whole idea of self-examination, self-denial, and watchfulness basically is unheard of in Baptist churches. So, So we could do a lot of work thinking about what that looks like. Unfortunately, we can't do it all today. But what I would say to you is this does involve things like meditating on God's Word, studying God's Word, learning the attributes of God, assessing your day at the end of the day to say, where were my priorities out of alignment? And where do I need to confess? Having a prayer of confession at the end of the day. Fasting is obviously the most prominent form of self-denial in the Christian tradition. Watchfulness is this idea that Christ could return any moment and we should watch our souls because there is also a great enemy who is out to destroy us before the return of Christ. So it is both being vigilant and being sober, being awake. In fact, I, I mentioned this to a couple of people yesterday, a couple of friends and Chelsea. I think outside of the command to pray, the command to be watchful is the most prevalent command in the New Testament. So if we're talking about practices of our faith, being watchful, wake up, don't go to sleep. Scripture is constantly reminding us of that. 
So there's more to life than security and comfort and what we typically call happiness. Now, I never thought I would do what I'm about to do, but I'm about to quote from Justin Bieber and one of his new songs. It's actually really great. It's like mind-bending to hear him singing what he's singing about. So if you really just want to get weird this afternoon, look up his album Freedom. But anyway, one song says this, I've had everything in life that people strive for just to ask the question, what are we alive for? Here's somebody who has been successful in every measure of the world. Incredibly successful. More successful than any of us in this room will ever be. And yet he knows that there must be more. He says, the only question I've really come to after I've I've looked at it all is, what am I alive for? What's the point of it all? And here's the point of it all from a Christian perspective. We were made to worship God. Anything less will leave us deeply unsatisfied and searching and spinning our wheels. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks it this way, what is the chief end of man to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever? If I can paraphrase the Heidelberg Catechism, which is somewhat older, it asks the first question, what is our only hope in life and death that we are not our own but belong to God? And these are later catechisms, but Jesus Himself says it in John 17, 3. He says, this is eternal life. What is eternal life? That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So what is eternal life according to Jesus and according to John's gospel? To know God. That is eternal life. Eternal life is not just floating away to some heavenly existence. It is starting now in your knowledge and communion of the living God to be brought into fellowship with the living God. So all of this calls for us to consider our ways, to take a look at our personal priorities, and to take a look at our congregational priorities. Is it true of us that our chief aim is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever? Is it true of us that eternal life means knowing God? Every other effort will leave us lacking and looking and unsatisfied. Everything else will come up short. Look at verse 9 in Haggai chapter 1. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because you haven't prioritized worship. That's the paraphrase. But listen to what he says. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies, literally runs around, busies himself with his own house. Take note once more of that word, ruins, in verse 9. Why, would sh- why should we expect blessing or happiness or satisfaction as long as we reject the Creator? Why, why would we respect any- or expect anything else? Verses 10 and 11. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. So there's no blessing here. Verse 11. And I have called for a drought... On the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. I just want to quickly point out the word play here. The Hebrew word for ruins in verses 4 and 9 shares the same consonants with the word for drought here in verse 11. So there's this little word play happening, and here's what it's doing. The connection between Judah's failure to prioritize worship, that is, the temple lies in ruins... 
and their lack of blessing, that is, they're experiencing a drought, is enforced. These two things are inseparable. The fact that they're failing to prioritize worship is the reason that they are finding their life to be so difficult. So church, if we're seeking God's blessing, we must prioritize the worship of the Lord so that he might be pleased and glorified by us. And we can't just slap the label of worship on anything we want. Just as the Lord gave Israel directions regarding the temple, he gives us directions for worship. Scripture must regulate our worship. I'll come back to that in just a moment after we finish the passage and make some final application. But for now, I want to show you the response of the leaders because it's absolutely the correct response. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltil, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest with all the remnant of the people. What did they do? They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. So this combination, as I said last week, of obedience and love and awe and wonder and worship, fearing the Lord, hearing the voice and obeying it, and they feared the Lord. I pray that we will be able to say this as a church, that we obeyed the voice of the Lord and the words of Scripture, and we feared the Lord above everything and everyone else. Look at the result, verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. I am with you. The Lord is present with them as a result. When you prioritize worship, you can expect God's presence. And then the obedience follows, verses 14 and 15. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the people, remnant of the people. And they came... And they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. From these people to now their God. You see that? And they're being obedient. On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. If you're keeping track of the chronology, it's about 23 days between this opening verse. When the word of the Lord came to Haggai and their response of building the temple. So a little over three weeks in our time. Now, I want to make sure our application is really sharp this morning because it's easy to preach a message like this, and I could end here and say, we need to prioritize worship. And all of us would say, yeah, yeah, that's right, we do. And then outside, you might, you might say to me, I don't know yet, but you might say to me, that was a good message, Pastor, thank you. But, but what do we mean when I say we must prioritize worship? What does that actually call for? I think we could talk a long time about this Um, But let's just talk kind of generally about a few things that come to mind. Why did I begin by reading the first two commandments? No other gods before me and no other or no images in worship. Well, as usual, I think our Baptist forebears give us some guidance and their guidance is situated around those two commandments. So I want to focus on two applications, just two to give with you to take away individual and congregational applications. Both have been alluded to throughout the passage, so hopefully you'll be able to see them rooted in Haggai 1. First, corporate worship must be regulated by Scripture. And really, I would say all worship must be regulated by Scripture. This is one of those, if I could go back and change my slide and my language here, I would say all worship 
Whether you're talking about your family worship, your personal worship, your private worship, or your corporate worship. But what I have in mind here is what we do as a church, which is why I've written it this way. The Lord directs us how to worship. Yes, Scripture tells us what things belong in worship like singing and the public reading of Scripture and the explanation of Scripture, especially as it points to Christ and the blessing of the Lord and singing psalms and hymns and rejoicing and taking the Lord's Supper. All of these things are part of worship in Scripture. But when we allow other practices to intrude on the worship service, we are not prioritizing worship because we are doing something that God has not authorized us to do. And quite frankly, we are committing idolatry. Just as the Israelites in Exodus 32 build a golden calf because they are impatient with the worship regulations they've been given, modern churches fall into the same trap when we allow all sorts of unbiblical elements to intrude upon our worship. You may think that's nuts, but look at what question 56 in the Baptist Catechism, a very old Baptist training document says, again, our Baptist forebears are much wiser on this than we are. What is forbidden in the second commandment? The second commandment forbids the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in His Word. When God says you shall not make any images, it would include our efforts to construct and formulate things that He has not commanded us to do in worship. Now, I won't spell out the ways we can violate this principle. Uh, If you want to send me emails of examples, that's great. Love to hear some. But let's just say they are all too common in Baptist churches. Second, we ought to prioritize the Lord's Day. And by that I mean Sunday. I'll talk about that in a second. The Lord's Day is an act of worship and is an act of countercultural expression. In the early days of the church, people thought Christians were bizarre because they got up early on the first day of the work week, which was Sunday, and they went to worship before they went to their jobs. That was a strange and odd thing to do. See, the first day of the week, Sunday, wasn't a sacred day until sometime in the 300s, but they did it no less because they believed that was the day they had been given. God had regulated their worship. They believed the resurrection was precedent for that. Later, many Christians objected to calling their day of worship Sunday, because it is, after all, the pagan name, the Son's Day. So they've said, the Lord's Day. They insisted on referring to the Lord's Day. Now, we've, we've certainly lost any sense of prioritizing the Lord's Day. Some of you remember it, blue laws, all that gets bound up in this. But I would argue in a different angle here. If we are serious about prioritizing worship, then it begins in the obvious place of prioritizing our corporate gathering on the Lord's Day. And being Christians going forward in 2021, 2022, 2023, this is more and more needful. And it's going to be more and more countercultural. Again, John Broadus, an important Southern Baptist, in fact, the second president of the Southern Baptist Seminary, includes the following questions in his catechism. What do we find the first Christians doing on the Lord's Day? They met for public worship, heard preaching, took the Lord's Supper, and gave money for religious objects. You see, he's all regulated by Scripture. Ought we to keep the Lord's Day as the Sabbath? Yes, we ought to keep the Lord's Day as a day of rest and holy employments. Ought we to keep the Lord's Day as the first Christians did? Yes. 
We ought to keep the Lord's Day as a day for public worship, with Bible study and preaching, for religious gifts and ordinances, and for doing good in every way. In other words, we should take a day devoted to the Lord. That doesn't mean spending our entirety of our time in church, but it also doesn't mean rushing out of the building, running home to do everything else that we're busy with in our life. It means we need to prioritize worship. Now, I'm not trying to be dogmatic about this. I won't give rules on you. If I see you mowing on Sunday, I'm not going to yell at you or bring you under church discipline. But consider the impact this practice might have. What impact would prioritizing the Lord's Day as a sacred day of devotion have on your life as an individual? If you said, Sunday's coming, the Lord's Day's coming... And we are preparing as a family or as an individual for that day. What impact would it have as you got up this morning? What impact would it have on your family, your neighbors, your co-workers, your fellow church members? In generations past, we've wondered why our children have left the church. And I'm afraid to say one rather obvious reason is that we haven't taught them to prioritize worship. So one way, parents, grandparents, that you can help. It's not drag your kids kicking and screaming, but show them the value of prioritizing worship and why it's important. See, part of being a Christian in the culture we now live in is prioritizing the Lord's Day. Making it a day devoted to the Lord. And it doesn't have to be a downer. You can actually make it the height of your week as it should be. You can have special meals and you can light candles and you can say family prayers and sing songs and teach your children catechisms and read scripture and talk about the Lord or memorize things for yourself. You can turn the TV off a little earlier, spend less time doing those things. Why? I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Consider your ways. Consider your priorities. What are you worshiping? Have you prioritized the worship of the Lord? And have we done so here at Monument Heights? Let's pray together. Lord, you are mighty. And you have brought us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You have united us with your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You have seated us in the heavenlies with him, far above all powers and earthly rulers. Lord, you have called us into one body, under one baptism, in one spirit, under one Lord. And now we are co-heirs with Christ. Lord, these are amazing truths. And yet here we are, brought to conviction because of our failure to prioritize worship. May we learn from the examples of the Old Testament saints. May we learn from the examples of those who went astray. That you, Lord, are worthy of every single ounce of our devotion. You are worthy of our mind, of our heart, of our souls, and of our strength. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us insight into the ways that we need to reassess and consider our ways. Lord, I would pray that you would bring great conviction here upon us at Monument Heights. 
Yes, Lord, I pray that you would bring agony on us where we are failing in these areas. I pray that it would be like a light bulb going off where we would see the errors that we might have been blind to. And Lord, I pray that we would be absolutely ruthless, stirred by your spirit to see you glorified and pleased in what we do here, not just on Sundays, but on Wednesdays, and then in every single action we take as members of this local congregation. Lord, I pray that in this we would see the gospel of Jesus, that we have been called into a new identity, into a new life, into a priesthood where we all live to serve you and to point others to you and to bring glory to you. So our prayer would be that our church would reflect this beautiful truth of our identity in Christ, that we are priests before you through the virtue of our great high priest, King Jesus. And so finally, Lord, my prayer would be for any of us who are either doubtful or unbelieving this morning, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts and regenerate us. Give us the new birth, Lord, so that we might be made alive to the gospel and filled with your spirit. Again, Lord, I pray that you would help us to take up the arms that are necessary and that we might stand for your glory whatever the cost. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.